Thank you, Joey, Liesel, congregation. These are all instruments in God's choir right here, and it's great to sit up near the front. If you're sitting in the back, you don't get to catch all of that coming forward, but I encourage you to try the front sometimes. Got an amen on the front row up here. Well, if you would, open your Bible this morning to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're at this morning, and I thought it would be good for us as we finish Jonah to take a few weeks and address specific topics from from verses in the Bible that might take some years to get to and specific issues that would help our church before beginning the book of Ephesians in September. And in September, we'll resume uh, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph exposition, uh, starting with the book of Ephesians. And and even today and in the coming weeks, we'll still be exposition of a text or texts. But I want to jump around a bit and hit some specific passages I think that would help us. So we're in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And I've entitled today's message, Living as a New Covenant Christian. Something that's often forgotten, something that is often ignored, and uh, some people are drifting away from in Christianity. Living as a New Covenant Christian. So let me read the passage to you, Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brethren... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I want us to look at this morning what is life as a Christian supposed to be like. If you're a believer, if you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, He has given us a new covenant, new promises, new blessings, new commands. And we ought not to put ourselves back under the law. He's given us a covenant of grace, a covenant that has been ratified by His blood. As wonderful as that is, so many today are wanting to go back under some kind of law. We have people who who add laws that aren't even mentioned anywhere in Scripture, and teach that you have to live by them to earn God's grace. Not just for initial salvation, but for this ongoing sanctification. That to be sanctified, you must continue to earn something from God. And the only way you can do that is by obeying certain laws. We see this especially lived out with what's called Judaizers in Scripture. And that survives even until today, where you have Movements like the Hebrew Roots Movement, where they're actually dressing like Pharisees, wearing clothes according to Old Testament law, eating and not eating things according to the Old Testament law. I even came across a movement called Lapid Judaism, where they believe that Yeshua, Jesus, is Messiah, but they also throw in lots of other traditions from the Pharisees, from the Mishnah, from Kabbalah, which is a magical type of Judaism. And it's all jumbled together 
under an old covenant type of life. But whether it's a formal outward old covenant approach where people are putting themselves under the law, or just your average Christian in America saying, you must do these things to earn God's pleasure, to earn God's grace. All of that is denying the true gospel. All of that, even though it might not be an outward denial of the mouth, it is an inward denial of the heart. It's what Paul addressed in Galatians. It's what Paul addressed in that passage in 2 Corinthians, which matches up perfectly with this passage here this morning. We are not to go back and put ourselves under the Old Covenant or anything like the Old Covenant. We have the New Covenant in Christ. We have the New Covenant promises. Who doesn't want to live under the New Covenant? The the book of Hebrews says it's so much better than the Old. The Old is obsolete. But now that the new has come, we should be thankful. We should rejoice. The Old Testament promised the new covenant. And it mentioned for us Gentiles in the future, we could get these four main benefits. I just want to remind you, we've studied this before, but the new covenant promises four things. And then the fifth is land to Israel, which this passage does not touch on. But I want to remind you of these four things promised even to us Gentiles. A renewed mind and heart. Forgiveness of sin the indwelling Holy Spirit, and the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is in us, not just to to prompt us to do the right thing, but He's actually teaching us as we look to His Word, the Word that the Spirit inspired. Those are are four great blessings of the New Covenant. And when we go back and try to go under the Old Testament law, Mosaic law, we try to live that way to earn God's grace. It wasn't even intended for that to begin with, but so many people even in the days of Jesus until today, are trying to earn God's grace. So what I want you to see here is this is an unconditional covenant. And I think you'll see that in the text, the first few verses. God does it all. It's all based on His grace. It seems like everywhere we've been lately in Scripture is just God's grace. Every chapter of Jonah, we were in Romans 8 a few weeks ago for four weeks, and it's all God's grace there. And here, even in Hebrews, it's God's grace. The context of Hebrews, let me give it to you so you understand where the book has has been since we haven't gone verse by verse from the beginning. It's written to Hebrew Christians, probably in Jerusalem or around that area of Palestine. It's written to them because they're struggling with persecution. They're Christians. They've, They've converted to Christ. They've had a changed heart. They have faith in Jesus. But their family, their friends, the government is persecuting them, just like they did with the apostles. And even though the apostles have now spread out and some have died probably, uh, we have these Hebrews in in the homeland of the Jews and they're tempted because of persecution to go back. You know, that old law wasn't so bad, they think. We didn't have our families being persecuted, our businesses being destroyed, our homes in jeopardy. Why, Why can't we just add some law to the gospel of grace? Why can't we add a little law to it? So the book of Hebrews was written to address that issue. And it's, it's really a theology with application, a theology with application all the way through. And all the way through the author here, which we don't really know who it is. I think it's probably Paul, but it's okay if you disagree. We won't uh, start a new denomination on that. But if it's not Paul, it's an apostle with authority here writing. And he's telling them not to go back. And he just proves it over and over. The new is better than the old. And he gets to this section in chapter 10 and he begins to make a drastic turn here of not just teaching them about theology, but really applying it to the church and to individual Christians. And really, since chapter 4, 
verse 14, the author here has been preaching a sermon. It probably was a sermon. The book of Hebrews probably was a sermon recorded and, and written down. But it sounds very much like a sermon. And, and he's been preaching since chapter 4 on how the Son of God has been appointed the ultimate high priest. He's the ultimate high priest. And he's delivered up himself as a once-for-all sacrifice. And so we come to this section now where it's making a turn. And, and what does that mean for our life? If Jesus is truly the high priest, how should we live? If he is our advocate before the Father, what does that mean for us? Hebrews 8.13 really brings this out. It says, uh, what he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Don't go back. And even today, we might not be tempted to go back under Judaism because we were never there. But we're always tempted to add law to the gospel. Not talking about the commands of Christ that we want to obey because we're saved, but to add laws to earn God's grace. Maybe God will give me what I want if I do such and such, if I give more, if I read the Bible every day for this year. Giving and reading the Bible are good things, but we should never think that we're somehow earning something from God as a result of it. So what I want you to see in the passage this morning is we are to live the Christian life under the new covenant based on the blood-bought blessings of Jesus Christ. We're to live out, we're to live out the truth of the gospel in our lives is another way of saying it. So to start with, let's look at those blessings, Christ-centered blessings. The first few verses describe Christ-centered blessings. Blessings that, that Christ has given us when he died on the cross for us. Yes, salvation as a whole is a blessing. But what the author here is trying to focus in on is the work that Jesus does for us continuously. Too much of Christianity today focuses on when you're saved at that moment to pray a prayer, to say a, a, a something, to come to the front, things that don't really indicate necessarily salvation. But then they say, now you're saved. It's good. You can sit back. You can relax. I've even been a part of a church when I was first saved. You didn't even have to bring your Bible for years. In other words, there's no focus on sanctification. There's no focus on what God is doing for us as a Christian and how we should respond. But the book of Hebrews is all about that. It's written to Christians, or at least professing Christians. And he just keeps telling them, here's how you should live. So first, though, he bases that on Christ-centered blessings. And the first blessing we have in Christ is access to God. We have access to God. We, we, can, we can come to God for worship, for prayer, the various things that we need to come to God to do. This might sound like a small thing, but you, you don't realize that in the ancient world, you could never approach a God. You could never approach a God without fear. Today, God has just been flippantly thrown about. You know, God loves everyone no matter what. No matter what, God loves everyone, doesn't care, will let you in on your good works. That's American Christianity. If you watch that DVD we have in the bookstore, American Gospel, I mean, that's what people think. God will just let us in because we're good. It wasn't that way in the ancient world. Even the pagans, and we saw that in the book of Jonah, didn't we? Even the pagans knew, you better be careful when you call upon a God. And so the Jews knew this too. You couldn't just come to God. And so the writer here says, therefore, brethren, therefore, based on 
everything that I've taught up until this point in the book of Hebrews. Since. So he's going to give a, a foundation here for what's coming later in this section. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place. Confidence. In, in ancient Israel, there's only one person that could enter the holy place. One person. That was the high priest. The high priest would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would offer up the blood from the heifer. He would offer up the sacrificial blood so that the sins of Israel might be passed over. Just like they put the blood on the doorpost at Passover to leave Egypt. Well, he would go in once a year and make atonement for their sins by this blood of the animals, throwing it on the mercy seat. But God is very holy. And so this priest had to make sure that he did all the steps before that so that he, when he went in, he would actually come out. Now there's a myth that they tied a rope around his ankle so they could drag him out. It's not in the Bible. It comes about uh, a thousand years later in Jewish tradition. But it does get the point across that God is a holy God. And you can't just have access to him even as the high priest of Israel. If you're not a Jew though, but you're called a God-fear in that day, you could go up to Jerusalem to worship God, but you couldn't even get into the temple. If you're a woman, you could get in a little closer to the, the court of women. And if you're a man, you could get in at least up to the door of the actual building, but you couldn't go inside. If you're a priest, you could go inside. And if you're the high priest, you could go to this most holy place. But here the writer says, now, because of Christ, because of Christ, the author tells us we can enter into the presence of God with confidence. Not a temple, because there's not one even on the earth right now. But he's, he's talking about the tabernacle of God in heaven. We can come before God to worship. We can come before God to pray. And not just come before Him, but with confidence. With confidence, with boldness. The word here in Greek means courage, fearlessness. The idea of a, a free and open expression or conduct. We have nothing to fear when we come before God. What if you sin today? You can come before God with confidence. Not in your sin, but in Christ's work for you to cover your sin. You can come before God with confidence, with courage. Not because you're better than God, but not fearing for your life. You come before God in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, and He might uh, destroy you because of your sin. Like He did Nadab and Abihu when they burned strange fire. Moses feared for his life when he went up to the mountain just to have a, a close meeting with God. But now, because of Christ, we can come before God with confidence, with courage. But how can this be? How is that possible? Well, I said it's because of Christ, and the, and the text tells us by the blood of Jesus. You see that? that? That's how it comes about, by the blood of Jesus. Christ, our, our Redeemer, has made it possible. His death on the cross, that's what it means by blood. It's not that His blood was, was magical, or super spiritual blood, physically, it was just blood. But when the Bible talks about the blood of Jesus, it's talking about his death on the cross where his blood was poured out, where his blood was shed as a sacrifice. It's, it's by that blood, it's by that sacrifice, by that death, that we can come to Christ. Which means we don't need anyone else. Frank did a great job in class this morning showing us how Mary is not an acceptable way to come to the Father or to Christ. If you weren't in that class, you want to listen to that. He's teaching on Roman Catholicism, a doctrinal study. 
And he showed us that that is not in accordance with Scripture. Because it's by the blood of Jesus only that we can approach God's throne. That we can come before him and even worship. And it's not by anything else. We can't seek somebody else to do it for us. We can't seek our parents to do it for us. We can't seek our elders to do it for us. We have to come before God on our own with confidence and approach him. Because of the blood of Jesus, we can enter the most holy place. He's given each of us that ability. And he goes on now to say it's by a new and living way. It's new because it doesn't require the old. The old was a yearly sacrifice. A high priest went up for you to sacrifice once a year, every year, for ongoing years, generation after generation after generation. And even still, they were just waiting on the Messiah to be the final sacrifice. But this is something new. It's better than the old. It's a completely new way. It wasn't open previously. doesn't mean people weren't saved in the old. Under the Old Testament, they were waiting for the Messiah. But now that we have the Messiah who's come and who's actually died on the cross, we don't go back to the old. By the way, that's why there's an old and a new testament. We're in the New Testament period now. It's a new way. It is completely new. One, one scholar said Jesus has opened a path for us, a path unknown and inaccessible to people before the completion of his high priestly work. And it's not only new, but it's a living way. It's not based on death. It's not based on the continual death of animals. You wanted to be made right with God? You had to make sure the high priest, of course, sacrificed for you, but you had to go up and sacrifice every year for yourself and your family. You had to buy an animal or raise an animal, most likely buy an animal, and take it up and slit its throat and watch the blood come out. And then they took it in and offered him up as a sacrifice and then gave you all the bloody leftovers to take home. And it was just constant death every year for these animals. And that was to show people, though, that God demands death for sin. That God demands death for sin. But this is a, a not, not a, a new way based on death, but it's a new and living way. It's not by dead bulls. It's not by dead goats. Those were only shadows of Christ's death. And when he died, he also was raised again. He was made alive again. It was a, it's a living way because although he was our sacrifice, although he died, he's now living. And he continues to live for us. In other words, we don't just get access to God the day we're saved. We get it our whole time here on earth. Now, we certainly get it after death if we're in Christ. But the focus here is on what we should do now. And he's saying since we have this confidence to come to God through Christ, through a new and living way. And he's going to tell us what to do with that a little bit later. But he continues, this new and living way is a way which he inaugurated for us through the veil. You see that in verse 20? He inaugurated this pathway for us through the veil. That is his flesh. On the old temple, you might recall that there was a, a, a large veil. It was very high, went all the way to the top of the temple, which was inside, which was very high, and it was very wide, and it was very thick. Estimates are somewhere around 16 to 18 inches thick. Maybe even multiple layers here of this dark purple curtain that the high priest would have to make his way through, either a fold in the, in the middle or on the side, to get to the holy place. It was very thick, so people couldn't just stumble and fall in. God might kill somebody, even a priest who did that. They weren't supposed to do that. So it was very thick, 
And it showed the distance between mankind and God. There's a, there's a barrier. There's a veil. And that veil was ripped, though, when Christ died. You remember in Luke, when we were studying Luke, the veil was ripped from top to bottom. It was rended open, signifying for us that we have access to God through Christ. And it says here, which really throws people off when they study this text, because it says that his flesh was the veil. And in just a similar way to the, to the veil that was ripped in the temple, Christ's body was torn in two on the cross so that we could enter through him. You still get to God through a veil, but it's not an actual veil. He's making a comparison here to the temple. It's not an actual veil that's in a temple. It's through Christ that we get to God. It's through Christ that we have access to him now. And we have to go through him. We have to go through his death on the cross, which means an unbeliever can't just say a prayer and end it with in Christ's name and expect to be heard by God. But a believer can. A believer can worship God truly through Christ, who is the veil that was torn for us. His body, his, his death on the cross, it is that veil that we have to go through now to get to God. And it's not limited to one person per year. Anyone who trusts in Christ can go to God the Father. Anyone has access. Again, we take this for granted. We take this for granted, but anyone, any pagan who's been saved, any drug dealer who's been converted, any murderer who's been changed by God and saved by Christ has access to God if they're a believer in Christ. We don't earn this right to God any way. Not by our good behavior. Not by our merits. It's only through the blood of Christ. He's, he's really emphasizing that here. First Peter 3.18 sums it up. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just, that's Christ, for the unjust, that's us, so that he might bring us to God. He might bring us before God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So that's just one of the blessings that we get. There's many blessings in Scripture that we get because of Christ, but there's two mentioned here. First is access to God, and secondly now, an advocate before God. We don't only have access, we, can't, we can certainly come now before God, but even better, we have an advocate before God. So it's not just us, but our advocate is there. Look at verse 21. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God. A great high priest over the house of God. He's not just any priest, though. He's a great high priest, the greatest one. And he's over the house of God, the church, all God's people. He reigns over the church as Lord. Not talking about a church building. If we move somewhere else, this is just an empty space. This is The building is not the church. The people are the church. The people gathered especially are the church. And he reigns over them. Christ is over the church as its Lord and as its high priest. He is a great priest over his church, every church. He's a great high priest, a perfect high priest. He's our advocate. Go back to... Uh, Hebrews 7.26. This high priest idea is carried throughout Scripture. But if you look at a few passages with me, I think you'll, you'll see it here. Hebrews 7.26. You see here, he's our perfect high priest. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Holy. Innocent. That means without sin. Uh, undefiled. He, he could not even be defiled. He was holy. Separated from sinners. 
and exalted above the heavens. Exalted above the heavens. Now look at the next verse. Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. That's what the high priest had to do. He had to sacrifice first for himself. So he could just go in front of God and not die and not be punished for his sins. He had to make a sacrifice for himself. Then he could offer a sacrifice for the people. But it says, because he, Jesus, the high priest, the perfect one, died once for all when he offered up himself. He is the high priest. He's better than any former high priest. And he's the perfect one because he offered himself as the sacrifice. He is the one that is the high priest over the house of God. Now go to chapter 7, verse 28. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. He is a perfect high priest forever, and he's now seated at the right hand of God. Look at that next verse, chapter 8, verse 1. Hebrews 8, 1. Now the main point, so he's going to sum it up. The main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He's our perfect high priest, and he's at the right hand of God. So when we approach God in worship and prayer and singing and scripture reading, not only can we do that, first of all, but we're also blessed with the fact that we have the perfect high priest, the perfect advocate right beside God. He's right there. Let's learn more about this high priest. Let's go back to Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, again, he's summarizing what he just covered. It sounds much like a sermon here. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, He's gone through the heavens, through the air, through, through space to go to the ultimate heaven with God, the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He can sympathize with every weakness we have, every sin we have. We have access and we have an advocate who's lived upon the earth and been tempted in every way. He can sympathize with us, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Not that he experienced every sin, he, he never sinned. And it's not even that he, that he experienced temptation for every single sin. Christ experienced all the categories that we could be tempted in. There's main ways that Satan tempts, and he experienced every temptation to sin that Satan could throw at him. You might say, well, he didn't experience my sin. Well, he hit all the main categories. And I think if he's the Savior and the Scripture says he can sympathize with us, then he can sympathize with you in your sin. Well, he was never married. Yeah, but he had to put up with the disciples. <laughs> you know? He, if you can, he can put up with all 12 disciples, especially Judas. Then uh, I think we can put up with our spouse and love them. And he can, he can sympathize. Well, well, he had no children. Again, uh, Satan offered to give him everything, the nations. Christ understands. He's not only fully man, but he's fully God. So he, he knows what it means to have children. And he knows what it means to be married because he created such an institution. He's been tempted in every way. Therefore, verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
every believer is at the same level when it comes to God's throne. Every believer. There's no partiality with God. You don't get to say, I have more access to God than the guy next to me. I have more access to God than my mother who's also a believer. No. We all have the same access to God. We all have the same advocate before God. That's the point he's trying to make here. So because we have these blessings, because we have these Christ-centered blessings, we're to do something with that. Christian life is not just about learning theology. You have to learn theology. You do. I know a lot of people say you don't. They say it puffs up your mind. They say better to do than to study. But you have to do both. Studying is doing, by the way. It's not doing to earn anything, but you're, you're putting effort into studying. But you better study and know what the Bible teaches so you know then how to live it out. Otherwise, you're just living out what some famous pastor said or what some popular book in the bookstore says or some false teacher might tempt you to believe. You better know the theology of Scripture and what it teaches. So now that we have these, these blessings, now that he's taught us the theology there, since we have these two things, he's going to say, live it out. Live it out. And so we come to the Spirit-empowered actions. Because of the blessings, we're to act upon them. And the Spirit helps us do that. And thankfully, that's one of the promises of the new covenant. One of the promises of the new covenant is that God will put his spirit in his people and they'll be able to follow what he says. I'll just read it to you from Ezekiel. The new covenant's mentioned in Jeremiah a couple of places and in Ezekiel a couple of places and then mentioned again by Christ in the Gospel of Luke and mentioned multiple times in the book of Hebrews. But Ezekiel is the passage that really focuses in on the Spirit's work. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. He's speaking to Israel here. Because Israel is always straying, he's going to cleanse them. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. Not the Holy Spirit here. He's just talking about a new spirit within each person. A new heart. A new desire. He's talking about being reborn. Being born again. He's promising that someday his people are going to have a completely new heart to believe and to follow. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And in verse 27, Ezekiel 36, 27, I'll put a new spirit. My spirit. I'll put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. He'll give us the Holy Spirit. And he'll cause us. He'll make us. Because we want to. He won't have to force us. Sometimes he will discipline us to get us back on the right path. But he will cause us to walk in his statutes. And he says you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's the new covenant that he promises to give. When, when the Messiah comes. When the Messiah dies. We have these blessings if you're a believer in Christ. Remember at the Last Supper, Jesus is, is taking the cup of wine. And he says what? This cup is the covenant in my blood. It represents the, the blood that he's about to shed. And, and that blood starts the new covenant. It ratifies the new covenant. So we get the Holy Spirit if you're in Christ. Now, since we have... Access to God and an advocate before God under the new covenant. 
Let's do these actions. He's exhorting us here practically to live for God. And each one of these three that are coming up, these three actions that we're to take, start with let us. Do you see that in the text? Three times the preacher, the author here is saying, let us do this and let us do this and let us do this. Not to earn favor with God. We already have it. We already have access to God. You're not trying to earn anything. But because you've been given these things, there are expectations. The gospel comes with expectations. Starts off with repent and believe. Continues with repent and believe. And as you learn more about what scripture commands you to do and how it commands you to live, you ought to do it. First of all, the first action that the Spirit empowers us to do is to worship. To worship. It's what we're doing here today. It's what we do every Sunday that we come together. It's hopefully what you do throughout the week when you have opportunities to worship God. Now I know people say you worship God in all things. And in a sense you are serving God and worshiping Him in that. But there are specific times that you draw near to God and worship Him. And that's what's being discussed here. We're to worship God as New Covenant Christians. And He says, let us draw near. Verse 22. Let us draw near. Let us come close to God and worship Him. We can now. We need to do it though. Just because we have the ability doesn't mean we always do it. And he says, let us draw near. Draw near in worship, communion, prayer, singing, reading scripture, receiving the word preached. That's just what we do on Sunday morning. That's probably the focus in the text here is the gathered body. But there are ways that you worship at home as well and with your family. Maybe even at work. Maybe even as you're driving down the road. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. And we can only do that because of what He's already done for us. But the idea is to come near. Don't slink back. Don't backslide, in other words, because that's what they're tempted to do. That's what we're tempted to do. Prone to wonder. You know that song, Come Thy Fount? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Be prone to wonder off like Jonah. Like Peter, who denied Christ three times. And he says, draw near. Don't don't backslide. Don't turn away from God. There's no need for it. There's no need to turn away. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of the universe. How many times have we sinned and thought, not coming to God now. I'm going to wait a little while. Somehow I'm going to get more holy throughout the day. Then I can come to him, right? It's silly. It's silly theology if you think about it. Oh, I've sinned too much to, to come before God and worship at church. All these holy, perfect people at church. She's going to stay home today and not draw near to God with the corporate body. We're all thinking that. It's not just you if you think that. We're all thinking that every week. Who am I to stand up and preach? A person who still has indwelling sin, as all of us do. Who are you to come and worship God in and, and, and truth and in and spirit? Well, he's not focusing on our sin here. He's saying, let us draw near. Understanding that we're all struggling with indwelling sin. Let us draw near. But now he's going to talk about how we do it. Don't slink back. Come to Christ in a, and have, you have access to come through Christ to God the Father in a new and living way. But how and what manner do you do that? Well, he says, with a sincere heart. With a sincere heart. So you're worried about your sin? Still come, but now do it with a sincere heart. We have confidence to draw near because of the work of Christ, but he expects us to come with the right kind of heart attitude you don't you don't say 
I'm saved by Jesus Christ, so I'm going to come with a sinful attitude before God and just tell him what to do. How'd that work out for Jonah? Not very good, right? How does that work out for Peter when, when he denies Christ three times? How does that work out in a couple of chapters in Hebrews 12 when it talks about how the Father disciplines those whom he loves? We're to come with a sincere heart. Yes, we've been given a new heart, but we still stray. We still go back sometimes. And he's saying, don't do that. Draw near with a sincere heart. Have confidence. And come with the right kind of attitude, the right kind of inner spiritual heart. He's more concerned with your heart attitude than your outward observances. You can't just show up at church and say, I drew near to God today. You got to do it with a sincere heart. You got to have the right motives. And none of us can do this perfectly, but he's calling us to the right attitude and actions. Come with the right heart, a genuine heart. The heart is, is where actions come out of as a Christian. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. You better be careful at what you let into your heart, what you believe, how you think, how you act, because everything comes out of that. Now James is much more straightforward. James beats us up a little bit. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Stop sinning. Stop being double-minded, saying, yeah, yeah, God, I draw near to him, but at the same time, you're, you're discontinuing with a sinful heart. Come to him and be cleansed of that. Come to him with the right attitude. Also, how should we come to God and draw near to him? We ought to do it not just with the right attitude, but in full assurance of faith. In full assurance of faith. As a result of what Christ has done, every believer has to draw near with complete confidence and certainty. He's already explained why in the previous section there with those blessings. And faith here is a firm trust placed in God. A firm trust placed in God who has shown himself to always be faithful to us. God is faithful we ought to continue in having a firm trust. It's not a one day you're saved and now you can go on with life as normal. It's a continuous life of trusting and repenting. And he says, make sure you're doing that when you come before God. God's not going to send us to hell if one day we sin and then come to him. But he's saying, come before him with the right heart and firmly know that you're trusting in him. Firmly know that you're trusting and having a full assurance of faith. Now, sometimes we struggle with that. Sometimes we even wonder maybe if we're truly saved. But when you come to him, you're not basing it just on what you are doing. You're basing it on what Christ has done for you. If you believe that Christ was the Son of God, that he died on the cross for sinners, and you believe that you've, you've actually turned from your sinful way and trusted in him for salvation, that's the kind of faith that the Bible describes. You don't have to have perfect faith, but you have to have a full assurance that what he did for you is all that's needed to be done. In other words, don't, don't come before God and think that somebody else has earned your way or that, that praying to the saints has somehow helped you. Full assurance of faith, because it's by faith alone that we can even come through Christ anyway. But what about our hearts? Are we even able to come with a sincere heart and full faith. How can we draw near when sin still dwells in us? We know God is uh, all wise and he makes sure to include these things in scripture to encourage us, 
Because if you read this far in, in verse 22, you're thinking, I, I know it says that, but I cannot do it. Well, he follows up with a couple of lines of text here that remind us what God's already done. You can do it because God's already done something in you. Yes, he's done something for us, access to God and the advocate before God, but he's also done something in you, having our hearts. So come, draw near, draw near to God, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. I can't come before God, I sin today. God says he sprinkled you clean from an evil conscience. Something has been done for you so that you can do it. It's pointing here at justification, that you've been cleansed, you've been forgiven. You've been declared righteous in Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, he took on your sin guilt and he gave you his righteousness. So you can because it's already been done for you. You've been justified. God's the one who sprinkled our hearts with Christ's blood and that kind of Old Testament sacrificial imagery. His death on the cross has, has cleansed us. Our evil conscience, our mind has been cleansed through the sacrifice of Christ. We've been justified. You know those sins that you used to think about and dwell on all the time? That you used to focus on? That's been cleansed from us. That's been cleansed. We're not slaves to that anymore. If we go back to it, it's because we choose to. Before that, you had to because it's what you desired all the time. God has cleansed you from them, justified you. And not only that, it says, he adds another one. Having our bodies washed with pure water. We can draw near. How? but because he's justified us and he's also regenerated us. It's pointing to regeneration. He's not talking about baptism here. He's not saying that you went and got dunked in the water and somehow that you know, cleansed you so that you could approach to God. No, baptism is just a symbol of what's already happened inside. He's pointing to that inside thing that's happened, regeneration, being born again. The thing I just read of in Ezekiel 36. You see the priest every year would have to go through rituals to come into the temple. And the high priest had to go through rituals before he went through into the holy place. He had to go through all these washings and all these cleansings. You can read about that in Leviticus. But we've already been cleansed. Every new covenant believer has truly been cleansed from our sin by the Lord and Savior. And we continue to be cleansed if we come to Him in repentance. 1 John 1, nine. He, he's He's faithful to forgive us. He will continue to cleanse us. He's done it for us. So we can draw near. That's that's the first one. We can draw near to worship. And the question is, are you seeking Him daily? Are you drawing near to Him daily? That's what the author is trying to get across to us. Are you coming to Him daily as your mediator? Are you going through someone else? Something else? Are you just forgetting completely? I already read to you, from Hebrews 4, verse 14. But this is the second time now that the author has said, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you long to draw near to God? Do you? Or you just say, you know, I'll go to church on Sunday. That's good enough. And even there, you're not really drawing near to God in your heart. Do you long for it? Like Moses did in Exodus 33? Let me know your ways, Moses said, that I may know you, so that I may find favor, grace in your sight. Let me know you, God, so well that it makes me want to follow you and obey you 
It makes me want to praise and worship you. And then I can know you even better. I can find grace in your sight. He's talking here about grace as he lives out a life before God. Because God's working in us. And we have to work out that grace. Sometimes believers think they can't come before God because they've sinned, but that's just really ridiculous. This whole passage is talking about don't do that. Don't fall into that trap. Come before God. Confess your sins. Draw near to Him. Draw near to Him. Seek Him daily. Constantly. The life lived before God is it's a continuous life lived before God. That's what it is. So that's a huge one. That, that Draw near to God and worship. Secondly, what else are we supposed to do since we have this great high priest that's an advocate, since we have access to God? What else are we supposed to do with the Spirit's power? Persevere. Persevere in the faith. Persevere in the faith. Don't turn away. Perseverance. Many, many Protestants and all Roman Catholics hold to this idea that you can't persevere. You don't even know if you can persevere until the end. There's either purgatory or some people are saved for a while and then they fall away and maybe they get saved again and then they fall away and it's back and forth. No, the Bible teaches that every true believer will persevere. They will persevere in the faith until the end. See so many Christians just turning away, turning away from Christ, turning away and going to something else, laying back on the law, laying back on the law. There was a family that we knew that professed Christ many years ago. and We, we saw... I think recently on social media that they had subjected themselves to Judaism. Still saying they believed in Christ, but they're coming into this lapid Judaism where they they dress like they think people in the Old Testament did. They only eat certain foods. And they truly believe that's their obedience. That's their law. They worship on Saturdays. They think that's the Sabbath day. That's the law. But no, you got to persevere. You can't, you can't get distracted and turn back. So he, he gives the second command here. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. The idea is hold on tight. Take a tight grip. Persevere in the faith. Hang on as tight as you can to the faith in Christ. Don't let that thing loose. Sometimes it says gird up your loins in Scripture. Gather up things tightly. Bound up tightly for the action that's required to live the Christian life. The spiritual warfare. That's required. Hold on tight. Because we have a great high priest, because he's given us a sacrifice that that atones for all of our sins, we can do it. We can do it. That's what it says to do. We can do it because of Christ. And we've got to hold on fast, it says, to the confession. What is the confession? Well, it's not talking here about a reformed confession. Those are great and all, but he's talking about our acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord and Savior, and how that plays out in our life. Hold on tight to it. When people come and try to tempt you to turn away, hold on. It seems like it's pretty common for Christians just to turn to some new fad of theology. You know, one day they're a Calvinist, the next day they're an Arminian, the next day they're they're Amaraldian, the next day they're a modalist. They're just constantly changing what they believe. They're not even holding fast to the fact that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And he's told us everything we need to know. That's what faith is. It's holding fast to our confession. It's an assurance of things hoped for. Look back at 6.19. Hebrews 6.19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. 
a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We have to hold on fast to the confession of our hope. Who is that? That's Jesus. And, and all the things that he's taught pertaining salvation. We've got to hold on to that. We can't say, you know, I believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, but we have to do X, Y, Z. Oh, I believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, but it's okay to live in a life of sin, get an unbiblical divorce, visit the local pagan temple to worship. No big deal. I mean, we're all sanctified here, right? We can do that. No, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, not just in our voice, but in our actions as well. Words matter, attitude matters, action matters. But it's not just action. Heart, remember heart, persevere. No retreating, in other words. No no bending your faith a little here and straying off. The straight and narrow path, stay on it. Not perfect, of course. No one's going to be perfect. The idea is, though, persevere, fight that sin. And hang on to your faith in Christ. For he who promised is faithful. That's why we should hold fast. He, he's faithful to us. He holds fast to us, doesn't he? Does he not hold fast? That's, that's the promise of eternal security. He makes sure that you're going to be able to stand before him on that day. For he who promised is faithful. We, we can hold fast. We can do it because he will hold us fast. So why does he tell us to do it? Because we play a part in that. We're, we're acting in that. God's working through us, but we have to desire it and do it. But he will make sure we do it. For if God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? He will give us what he's promised. We must hold on to that hope in Christ. But lastly, the third, the third action that we must do because he's given us the ability, because he's given us the Holy Spirit, is encourage. Encourage. Encourage one another. It's not just about you, but your interaction with everyone in the body. It's not just about you having access, but you also doing things to help others. Let's see what he talks about here. Let us, verse 24, let us consider. Stop there. Consider. It means to give careful consideration, thoughtful attention, deep concern. Keep on doing this. What? Caring for one another. Let us consider how to do this. Let us consider how to keep on doing this. How to stimulate, he says, one another to love and good deeds. This word stimulate is is interesting. We think of encouragement as always saying nice things to one another. Maybe always building up. The word stimulate here, it means to stir up, to provoke. To rouse somebody to activity. It's a strong word. It's, it's, the Greek word is where we get our English medical word, paroxysm. A sudden convulsion or spasm. A sort of a violent emotion. That's a paroxysm, a, a spasm. And he's saying, look, work hard. Consider all the different ways. Think about it. How you can incite one another. Not in a sinful way. You can't say, well, it says i got to provoke you, so I'm going to do it sinfully. No, he's saying all the godly, holy ways to stir up others to do things. To do what? Love and good deeds. Stir up others to, to love God and to love one another and do good deeds for God and, and for one another. It goes together. 
We should focus our minds on that. Our energy towards fellow church members should be focused on this one phrase. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Maybe that's through scripture, reading, scripture study. Maybe that's through taking a meal. Maybe that's through serving. Maybe that's through serving literally in the Sunday morning service in some fashion. Various ways to stimulate others, to, to rouse them up to do what is right, what is godly. We've got to focus on that. Let's consider how to, how to stimulate one another. It's a responsibility that we have. It belongs to all of us. If you're here this morning as a Christian, that that's your work in the church. You know, I don't know if I'm called to serve God. He says you are right here. You are. Now you might need to focus on uh, some of the desires you have and, and go with that in giftings. But in all ways, you are to consider how to stimulate one another, how to stir one another up. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And he goes on to say, we ought to love one another. Because of your personal faith in Jesus, you're not just sitting there doing nothing with all the other believers. You're stirring them up. You're, you're showing them how to love and how to do good deeds, and you're expecting that they will do it. Every new member takes a, a covenant. They, they sign a covenant here. You've probably seen it when we induct new members. That's sort of our list of biblical passages that we should be doing to stir up one another. So how are we to do that, though? I mean, how exactly does that work? Well, first, he says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. Not forsaking, not to separate connection with someone, not to abandon, not to desert. It's the same word Jesus used in Matthew 27 when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a very strong word in Scripture. And assembling here is, is the idea of regular gathering together as Christian believers for worship, for exhortation in a particular place together. Regular church meetings, particularly the Sunday worship service is what he's talking about. He's not saying you've got to come to everything that's offered every day of the week. But he's saying don't, don't forsake assembling together as is the habit of some. Some people in Jerusalem that have been converted to Christ are too scared to go to church. They're just too scared. Somebody might see them. Uh, somebody might hurt them because they went and worshipped with Christians. Of course, we, we have way more excuses that we make these days to not go. If they went, they might get killed, but he says go. Well, we have lots of excuses, don't we? And some are valid. You can't get out of bed. You're going to get everybody else sick. You're not even in the state or she could find a, a church to worship if you're traveling. But the point here is he says, don't forsake. You can't stimulate one another to good deeds if you're not there. And so for Christians who are just kind of sitting at home, how do you stimulate one another to good deeds? How do you do it? It doesn't even work. You can't do it through the internet. As great as listening to things on the internet are, you need to be in a real church. You need to be there regularly, encouraging, stimulating. Christianity is not just between me, Jesus, and my Bible, but it's putting us in a community of other people who have Jesus, and that can stimulate us, and we can stimulate them and encourage them. One person said, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, but you don't have to go home to be married either. I'm married, but I never go home. Does that make sense? You know, maybe in some relationships, but it's not a good thing. You can be saved and not be part of a church, but it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. So he says, don't forsake our own assembly together. And then lastly here, how do we do it? Well, instead of skipping out on the meetings of the Christians, instead of that, encourage one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. How do you provoke people to do love and good deeds? Encourage them. 
he already said that in verse uh, in chapter 313. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, encourage is not always to build up. That's the ultimate goal, but it doesn't always sound nice. The word, the actual Greek word here for encourage could include a, to urge strongly, to appeal to, to exhort, or to what we think of as encourage. They might like what you say. They might not like what you say, but you've got to exhort them sometime. Stop this sin. Here's the scriptures. Here's what you should do. And my preaching should be exhortation, not just the gospel of nice. You can get that down the highway in multiple places. This is what the scripture says. Sometimes it builds up and sometimes it knocks down so that God can build us back up. There's an urgency though here. Do it now because Jesus is coming back. The day is drawing near. He's coming back. Don't forsake coming together. Get together and encourage and build up and exhort and continue to help people grow in the faith. It's one of the reasons I I like biblical counseling, real biblical counseling so much because that's a, a big focus. Exhortation, admonishment, they're building up people in the faith. People who struggle with sins need to sit down with somebody, go through the scriptures. That's what we call biblical counseling. It's something we want to focus on in our church. The Lord's coming back. Let's get after this. Let's get busy. How do we build up? Well, you see it happening all around. You see it happening. But, but meet with people outside of church even. Have coffee with them. Have lunch with them. Come to Bible studies where other people are already there. You're not commanded to be at everything, but when you're at many things, you can get to know people. You can help them. Come to class on Sunday morning at 9. Before and after fellowship. You see sin? Point it out gently to the person. Encourage them to do the right thing. You see them sin again? Then follow the steps in Matthew 18. Evangelize the lost together. That's very stimulating to one another. Hearing the gospel proclaimed to someone else teaches and encourages and helps. Develop meaningful friendships in the church. Focus on serving singles. Focus on, on serving families who are struggling. Young people, senior saints, various ways we can do it. But we have to do these actions because of what Christ has done for us. He's given us these blessings. We're not just to sit down and say, you know what, I'll just wait till Jesus comes back. No, keep doing these things, these actions, until Christ returns. God's saying through this passage that because of what Christ has done for you, you got to put your faith into action. Christianity is not a resting faith. It's, it's not just sitting back on a cruise ship. It's more like some of our military vessels where there's just training all the time. Just training all the time. Just getting ready all the time. And doing actions to prepare for battle. That's the Christian life under the new covenant. It's a wonderful passage. I hope you put it into practice in your life as a believer. Let's now pray to God to help us do that. Father, we do ask that you would make these things a reality in our hearts. Sometimes we know these things, but we don't do them. Other times we do them, but we don't even understand really what's behind it. Help us to have both. You told us in your promise of the new covenant that you would put the Spirit in us, that you would forgive us, and that you would cause us to obey your statutes and commandments. So help us to understand why we should do it and help us to actually do it. We pray that you would bless us in this way. In the name of our Savior, the only one that we can come before you, our perfect high priest, in Jesus' name, amen.